Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, Stories of the Supernatural. How you all doing? And today, I am so excited uh, because I have a guest which, uh, to say it's, it's, he's fascinating is coming up short. Uh, the gentleman that I have with me today is Robert Sullivan IV. And he is, uh, he's an author of several books and um, mostly about Masonic rituals, esoteric symbology in the movies. And um, Robert, he's originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, he attended Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania, and he earned his BA in history. Uh, he studied abroad at St. Catherine's College in Oxford University in England, uh, where he studied European history and philosophy. Uh, he attended Widener University School of Law in their Delaware campus. And from there, he received his Juris Doctorate. Uh, he's admitted to the State Bar of Maryland as well as District of Columbia. Now, he has been a Freemason, and he joined uh, back in 1997 the Amicable St. John's Lodge Number no. 25 out of Baltimore, and he became a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Mason in 1999. Now, his first book uh, was The Royal Arch of Enoch. And what that dealt with was the impact of Masonic rituals, philosophy, and symbolism. And this was a product of 20 years worth of research. Now, he went on then to publish a book by the name of Cinema Symbolism. And that book, uh, what he points out very adeptly, is all the esoteric imagery that you see in just about every type of popular story as in film that you see today uh, and some of it as a matter of fact uh, it's not even current it, it starts sometimes as early as the films that were being produced in the 30s and the 40s ex, ex, you know etc so right now he's working on five books and um, the last book that he produced which is called Pack with the Devil is uh, his first non-fiction book he has a uh, the cinema symbology he has two, uh, one and two, because I think that once you start looking at movies, you realize uh, apparently that there's symbology in just about everything, more some more than others, and um, and of course not all of it necessarily is Masonic symbology, okay? Because as you know, there's uh, symbologies. Uh, attached to different belief systems, occult practices, religious beliefs. Some of them, uh, they predate Christianity. They're not even all Judeo-Christian. You have some that are even Egyptian, etc. So anyway, uh, let me go ahead and get this started because believe me, uh, I have heard Robert before on other interviews and he is fascinating his work is fascinating and it also his understanding is a real eye-opener about when you go to the movies and you look at these films exactly what it is that you're seeing in more ways than one so here we go with your subconscious mind on levels you're not even aware of because what i'm thinking also is that um there and 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 it makes you think you know is it something that let's let's go back to like these writers like tolkien and you know, which is like almost predates the time of cinema. And you're thinking, okay, they, they, they absorbed it from the religious teachings, from what they were learning when they went to universities and school. Uh, in other words, like you said, this is the mythology 
that's been handed down through the years and now it's just basically gone a thousand times more effective because you see it in film because right 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 it, it, it's instead of instead of hearing tales by a, a, a Greek bard or, or something, you know, about Hercules. Now it's Luke Skywalker and Neo Anderson in the Matrix. Um, it's just uh, things being rebranded and renamed. And again, these movies can draw on themes. I mean, it, it's very deep. I mean, these, these, can, these movies can draw on themes of Gnosticism, ancient religion, mystery schools, um, you know, alchemy, Kabbalah, uh, Freemasonry, symbolism, numbers, um, you know, I mean, all, all this is in play when you're when you're watching these films. Um, and, and what is key is, you know, is 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 to discover the context of the film. You know, what's the movie ultimately about? What's going on in the movie? Uh, you know, is it is it a, is it is it the hero's journey? Is it the monomyth? Is, is the story alchemical? Am I dealing with consciousness, you know, conscious awakening? Am, am I dealing with, um, you know, a magical adventure of some kind? Right. Am, am I dealing with transition of the self? You know, is, is there numbers that are being repeated over and over again in the film? You know, and if so, why? You know, what, why is the number 88, you know, constantly, you know, uh, being used in Back to the Future? Um, well, there's a reason for that. Um, Which is? And, <laughs> Which is? Oh, it's a long story. Uh, that, that's a real long one. Oh, okay. Uh, no, I know. It, it has to do with, um, well, well, a lot of this, you know, we, we get into the whole Christ um, you know, the resurrected sun, light versus dark. I mean, the whole Back to the Future movie is a retelling of the Egyptian Osirian mythology, um, where you clearly have George McFly as Osiris, Lorraine Baines as his virgin wife, Isis, Horus would be Marty. Uh, and, you know, of course, they do battle with Typhon or Biff Tannen. Uh, even the name is phonetic. They live at Lion Estate, Leo the Lion, the oh solar God, family. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Um, you know, you know, when, 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 you know, Marty drives the sun chariot, the DeLorean, you know, it spits the fire and flames. This is, uh, Horace's, uh, uh, comparison, Apollo who drives the sun chariot. Um, when he goes back in time to 1955, um, we're, we're, you know, the, the thing is, the thing is 88 miles an hour. We're told this over and over again. Yes. You know, on, on just on its surface, if you take the number eight and turn it sideways, you have the symbol for time and infinity. Um, but is there a deeper meaning to this? When he goes back in time, um, it, it, what, it, what it is, is it's taking the DeLorean and turning it into a sun chariot. When he, when he goes back in time, uh, you, you'll hear this, that this, this is bombarded at you over and over again. This is in the first movie, the, that the lightning is going to strike the clock tower at, at 10.04 p.m. Right. 10.04, 10.04, 10.04, 10.04. This is told to you a dozen times. Uh, the number, the 10.04 is a date. Um, it's October 4th. Yes. And uh, October 4th, on October 4th, there's 88 days left to the sun year. Um, so by oh investing in car with 88 miles an hour, it's turning it into the solar chariot. By the lightning striking it at 10.04, it's turning Apollo's chariot into a sun chariot. Thus, the space-time continuum can be broken. Uh, very esoteric imagery there. Um, you clearly have the Doc Brown character as the Egyptian god Hermes, Trismegistus, you know, the magician character. Right. Uh, uh, it's interesting. I mean, there's some symbolism in it that, that, it, that goes by people um, that's kind of on its surface. The first scientist to, in, to to conjure time travel was Einstein, hence the dog Einstein is the world's first time yes, traveler. Yes, that's right. If you, pay, if you pay attention to it, the entire movie loops. Uh, it literally goes back to the future. Uh, and, and this is something these guys, this is something Zemeckis and Spielberg just love wreaking havoc with. If you watch the beginning of the movie, if, when you sit down to watch the very first uh, Back to the Future movie, pay attention to the opening sequence. It's actually the end of the movie. 
um, you're, you're focusing on Doc Brown's timepieces, and it goes through a whole slew of them. One of the pieces has a guy hanging off the clock hand, which is Doc Brown at the end of the movie hanging off the clock, the, the, the clock tower. Then he goes to another timepiece with a wino drinking wine, and that's Marty when he comes back meeting Red, the guy drinking the wine. Then he goes to the alarm where it goes off and it says, uh, you know, this is when the, the actual electronic alarm goes off and you're going to hear an ad for something called Statler Toyota. Um, that's the Toyota dealership where Marty gets the car from at the end um, is Statler Toyota. So, so, and you'll see that in the film when he's standing in front of the clock tower, he says, Hey Jen, take a look at that four by four and you'll see it brand new at Statler Toyota. Wow. Oh my movie God. is the whole end of the movie. It's back to the future. When you, when you watch, they do this throughout the whole films. When you watch part three, uh, Back to the Future 3, right. when Marty goes back in time to 1888, when yeah. he's walking into Hill Valley, you're going to see a sign that says, Honest Joe Statler, horses bought and sold. And he's obviously the ancestor of the Toyota right. dealership guy. When in, in part one, when Mar this is again going back to the future, when Marty and Jennifer are standing in front of the clock tower, this is in part one, the store in the background is called the Third Eye. And it's a, a fortune-telling store. You go and you have your tarot cards read, palms read. It's fortune-telling. When Marty in part two goes ahead to 2015 or 16 or whatever it is, I think it's 15. When he goes ahead to 2015, that same store now is Blast to the Past, which houses all the relics. So it's dualistic. Wow. In the, in, the, in, the, in the present, it tells the future. In the future, it houses the past. And th this is the sort of things these guys just love playing around with, um, you know, in these films. And it's very esoteric and it's very powerful. And you know, it, it on the face of it, you think of Back to the Future such a, as a wholesome, very, uh, very innocent kind of uh, storyline is what I'm thinking of. You know, here's this kid that you know has this uh, friend who's a scientist, and he goes back in time and he has an adventure, and then you you look at what you're talking about. It's like what? There's so much going on behind the scenes, and on the surface, it appears to be so easy to understand, I guess is what I'm saying. You know? Well, one of the reasons why I wrote the book was so that people can understand this when they're seeing these movies that, you know, we're dealing with ancient mythologies here. A lot of movies that people believe, you know, I mean, a, a movie that can be, you know, innocuous, um, can be overloaded. The Wizard of Oz is another one of these um, that is just dripping with symbolism. Um, ch child's movies. Um, things designed for children uh, can also be dripping, uh, you know, or, or, you know, be replete with esoteric imagery, um, you know, or political allegory, uh, you know, so, you know, some of the Walt Disney material, um, you know, we're doing with a lot of fairy tales. Again, this is archetypal imagery. Some of this stuff comes out of the counter-reformation uh, and some of it can be very dark. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, you know, when, 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 you know, when, when you're dealing with the subject, you know, it's not only, it's not necessarily the brooding, you know, uh, you know, I mean, we could, you know, horror movies have this. I mean, The Exorcist has, has is all, all, you know, the, 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 the um, William Peter Blatty, the film uh, by Friedkin, The Exorcist is overloaded with, with esoteric imagery um, that, that again, you know, kind of tweaks at your subconscious mind. It, you, you're going to watch the movie a hundred times and not see any of it. Um, uh, you know, and, and again, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the esoteric imagery. I guess the point I'm trying to make is it's not limited to a genre. I mean, you can find it in comedies, you can find it in drama, action, adventure, you know, like you said, family fun movies, um, right. you know, you know, you can find it in a whole slate of different films. Right. And, you know, because there's certain films usually meant for adults that you that are categorized as deep films. But then there's like 
the, all these other films and stories, you know, some some of them that are based on novels or in some cases fairy tales, which you think are what you're seeing is what it, it's all about. And well, right. Well, no, that's not the case, though. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. I mean, it's like, uh, and uh, I'm going to ask you because in the last couple of well, not couple, I want to say, there's been this huge. Um, all these superhero movies, but a lot of them based on comic books that came out, what, 40, 50 years ago. Um, I'm sure that's now based on what you're saying, they have got to be loaded down with all these different symbols. Uh, sure. Sure. I mean, I mean, right. I mean, you're dealing with, again, depending on which one I, 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 I be honest with you. Um, I am not as well versed just cause I haven't seen them. Mm-hmm. Um, like some of, some of the Marvel ones. Um, right. So I, I haven't, I haven't, um, you know, you know, really studied them, and I really don't analyze movies. I'm not saying it's not there, but without seeing it, I can't really talk well, about no, it. Well, no, and it, almost part of what you're saying is, and some of it, I'm thinking at it from the psychological. It's like fear of being ordinary, you know, like you said, the 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 guy or the kid that maybe has an ordinary or maybe even undesirable life is in reality special, or has special parents or special powers or something special. And, uh, and and I guess the reason why I'm thinking of that is that we see it so much now, not only in movies, but in shows, you know, just even the, the, the shows that they have on regular TV. I'm thinking it's like overdone, like being ordinary is like the worst thing in the world because. Well, yeah, they, 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 they the Batman, um, the Batman series is very psychological. A lot of this has to do with conscious ego and, and shadow self. You have mythology coming into this, you know, with characters like uh, Catwoman, who is clearly a, a Lilith, you know, personification. Two faces, the Roman god Janus. Um, Superman, another DC comic, is Christ. Um, you know, is a Jesus. You know, you know, stand-in analog. You know, I mean, think about it. You know, the only begotten son of you know some right. god sent the planet Earth to save mankind from itself. By performing miracles, I mean, you look at the Superman films. I mean, in in the one with Christopher Reeves, the first one. I mean, he resurrects the dead. He brings you know Lois Lane back to life. Yes, um, you're right. In in the one that came out, um, if you pay attention to this, uh, Superman is constant. I mean, he's 33 years old. He says in the movie, which is obviously a reference to Jesus's age yes. at the crucifixion. Um, if you pay attention to the film, uh, Man of Steel, uh, Superman is constantly flying around cruciform in front of the sun uh that that is a clear christian allegory right there so um yeah i mean it just it just depends on the superhero movie i, I get into this a little bit uh in in, in both the, the movie books um again unfortunately i'm not as well versed with the marvel right. material right. but but no i mean you know you know the the um the superhero is definitely archetypal you know religious you know you name it it's there well, right, and it makes you think that now, because I'm looking at it, you know, even like I said, sometimes it's pretty obvious that there's something going on behind the scenes, but now, after what you've explained, it's like like everything that's produced has some type of symbology embedded in it, either to a very limited degree, or it's everywhere, uh, totally. And um, I don't know, have you seen this last series that came out? It's called... Um, uh, stranger or uh, strange things it's it it's like a throwback to the 80s and basically it kind of tips its hat to all the different 80s movies 
like, uh, you know, all the ones that came out in the 80s from Steven Spielberg. And now I'm thinking back that, you know, it's using the symbology from all those 80s films to kind of like insert itself into a modern story. Yeah, I haven't seen it. So without having seen it, I, okay. I, I couldn't really comment. But I will say this. Uh, TV shows are not immune from this. Um, th th there are some shows that were overloaded with, with symbolism. Uh, one of the shows that I, I, I enjoyed watching, um, and it just it just ended. Uh, it just ended with its fifth season uh, back in April, um, was a TV show that aired on A&E called Bates Motel. Yes. Uh, and it was about, it was about, it was like a play on Psycho mm -hmm. uh, by Hitchcock. And it was on for five years. And what was funny was, um, for the force, I, I watched, I have all the, I have all the Blu-ray here of, of all of them. The first four years were, were great shows. I mean, they were great, but really nothing esoteric going on okay. um, until the fifth, until the fifth year came around. Um, and the fifth year, the last year was overloaded with stuff. Really? Um, yeah. And, and I, I sat back and I kind of, um, was wondering why that was, um, you know, why they kind of ignored it for the first four, but really in the fifth year, they overloaded it and it, and it hit me. It, I did figure it out. It's because in the fifth year, the, the story caught up with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. So by, by incorporating oh, okay, it, okay, okay, okay. They, they, were, they were um, sort of homaging Hitchcock by putting a lot of the things in the Hitchcock movie that was, you know, that, that he used. Um, okay. for, for example, I mean, I'll, I'll just get into it real quick. You know, if you sure. haven't seen the show, um, it, it, at the very beginning of season five, the very first thing you saw was a record playing. Um, and the record was put out, I believe, by uh, Plain, Plainfield Records. Um, and Plainview, Plainfield Records is a reference to Ed Gein, um, who was a serial killer who was Norman yes. Bates was based upon. Um, and this was the historic, you know, this is the Norman Bates from uh, Psycho. So by putting that in there, it was referencing wow. Psycho. And Gein. So that was really interesting. But the fifth season of Bates Motel was overloaded, where the first four were not. And I was really kind of struggling. Oh, why, why, why is that? Why is that? But it was it was because it had caught up the psycho. Um, and, that, and so they decided to do all the esoteric imagery going back to the Hitchcock film. And you know what? And I'm gonna, and I'm glad you brought up Hitchcock. When you look at a Hitchcock film, you always it's almost like you know ahead of time that Hitchcock does that. You know, that he oh, puts sure. in all these uh, things in there. So you're you know to look for them. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, H Hitchcock uses uh, symbolism in, in his films. No question about it. Um, one of the things he does. Um, that, that he was almost obsessed with um, was uh, in, in Psycho, um, and you'll find this in other movies as well, we, 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 if, if the female character um, starts to go down a dark path, um, the clothing changes. Oh, I got to look at that. Wow. It's tans, uh, you know, you know, and, then, but, you know, and then they'll go to black. And you'll find that in Psycho when, when Marion Crane starts the movie out, she's running around in the white underwear. But after she steals the money, all her underwear is black. Um, oh and you'll find that also in, in, in another one of his movies, he does it as well, um, where, where the character's wardrobe starts out and, and you, you, that, you know, that, that's something else you can play around with is wardrobe, um, in Black Swan, for instance, what we were talking about earlier, if you pay attention to it, um, you know, Nina Sayers, the, you know, the virginal girl, all her clothing is white, tan, all the dark, or the, the lily is all black, you know, and, you know, the mother's all black. You know, you know, everyone's wearing the dark clothing, symbolizing the dark side. Uh, if you ever watch the movie Fatal Attraction, yes. uh, you know, the, the Glenn Close character's movies, uh, the Glenn Close character's movie uh, uh, clothing is black and white. Um, that's all she wears is black and white, symbolizing, you know, is she good or evil? You know, she, she doesn't know. 
Um, okay. You know, you know, if you watch that movie, everything she wears is either black, white, or black and white, um, signifying you know good versus evil. That you know she's both at the same time essentially, and she doesn't know she's you know messed up. So yeah, I mean that yes. that's a whole other thing is the wardrobe um, the characters wear sometimes can have esoteric imagery as well. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it's a fascinating study, and and, uh, I, like and I, I'm thinking also now I'm looking thinking about you know not only the clothing, the lighting because. And you're right, you know, you think of some movies and they're always either filmed in rainy cities or, you know, overcast settings or very gray, grayish kind of surroundings. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that that's absolutely true. Uh, weather, weather can be a technique that these people use. Um, there's some great examples of that um, in, in film uh, where the weather can re wreak havoc with you, with, with your mind. I I'll go into two or three briefly. One is, um, in the Omen movies, which is about the Antichrist. Yes. Um, if, if you watch the first one, this is where the one, the little boys coming of age. If you watch the second Omen movie, this is where the Antichrist's power is growing. Um, and of course, you know, when the Antichrist, you know, is darkness, the sun God is diminished. And if you watch the second Omen movie, it, it takes place in perpetual autumn and winter, uh, yes, when the sun right. is at its weakest. Um, there's no, there's no summer months or, or spring in the Omen 2. And in fact, in the Omen 3, when Christ comes back, it's at the vernal equinox, uh, when the sun defeats darkness and comes out of the vault of winter. Um, so darkness is defeated and the light comes back. In fact, Omen 3 was actually released on the vernal equinox of 1980, signifying the death of darkness and the return of Jesus, or the, the, the sun, basically. Uh, wow. another trick, another trick, um, that the, the same technique is used is in The Exorcist, where... It starts off in the dark heat of the of the desert, and then we flip to Georgetown, um, and we have Chris McNeil um, going on. And this this is something that's very adroit. Uh, Stanley Kubrick does the same trick in the in the Shining. Excuse me, in The Exorcist, Chris McNeil is walking back from the movie set at Georgetown University, um, and if you pay attention, she's accosted by a group of trick or treaters. Yes. Um, what that is some symbolically telling your mind is this is Halloween. Uh, Halloween is the halfway point between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice when the sun is in death and darkness is taking over. Hence, exactly. from this point on, the demon can come out, wreak havoc in Georgetown, deface the Dahlgren Memorial. So hence, we have this by, by merely putting the trick-or-treaters there, your subconscious mind knows it's Halloween and darkness is coming. Um, the dark, the darkness of winter, hence, you know, the, you know, darkness is defeated sunlight, light, the sun, hence the demons can come out to play. If you watch a few years later, pay attention to The Shining, um, when Jack Nicholson is sitting in Ullman's office, mm -hmm. um, and talking to him about becoming the caretaker. He says, well, Ullman says, he says, well, our normal operating hours are the middle of May to October 30th. Um, so we know when Jack Torrance arrives at the Overlook. <gasps> oh, my is God, open. you're right. And, and it's the same thing. We know that darkness is on its way. The sun is dying. And what happens in the movie? We have winter and we have the ghosts coming out to play in the overlook. So the, these are the same techniques that these guys are using to prepare. Right. They're, they're, they're using death, ghosts. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that I, because I did read the, the Stephen King, the, the, you know, when he came out with The Shining, and then you look at the, at the movie and even though a lot of the things they do follow Stephen King's novel there's a lot of things that he put into that movie which were not part of the book when you read it oh I'm sure I mean if, if you look at that movie um, I mean I know this this isn't in the book obviously um, the entire movie is repetition um, everything in that movie repeats 
um, constantly. You are, if you watch The Shining, everything is repeating from start to finish, um, quite literally. The movie is... and numbers from the very opening sequence um, to the end of the movie. And he also uses doubles, um, you know, sets of doubles, again, to, 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 to convey repetition, uh, to, re to, to symbolize the same thing happening over and over again, um, which is what's going on inside the Overlook Hotel. Um, it's endless uh, repetition going on. I'm going to give you some examples of this if, if you want to hear it. Yes, them. absolutely, uh, yes. Um, so, I mean, in The Shining, um, let's see here. Well, if you watch the movie, um, when Jack Nicholson is driving um, to the Overlook, um, he passes four cars, two are moving, two are stationary. Um, so we have doubles. We have two sets of twins inside the Overlook, the yes. little girls. And then when Allman is showing them their quarters, two adult twins pass him. He says, have a nice, uh, you know, winter girls, and they're twins. Um, in the Overlook, we have um, two mazes, the actual hotel and the hedge mage outside. Um, two Portlands are mentioned at the bar, Maine and Oregon. Um, Jack Nicholson has two tens and two twenties in his wallet. That's um, right. you know, uh, you know, the number 12 repeats. Um, there are 12 turkeys in, in the fridge. Uh, there are 24 pork roasts, which is 12 times two. Um, there are 12 pound bags of sugar. Uh, there are 12 jugs of molasses. Uh, the hotel is KDK 12. Um, they take 12 turns in the hedge maze. Two times are shown on screen, eight plus four, eight and four o'clock. Add eight plus four to get the number 12. Um, Jack throws the ball against the wall 12 times. He hits the door 12 times with the axe. Um, this is the sort of thing that is going on in The Shining. It is constant repetition, and it is completely designed by Kubrick to bombard your subconscious mind with... I mean, I give you other examples of this. I yes. Mean, uh, you know, uh, another number that repeats is 42. Um, if you take a look at the hotel room number, um, it's 237. If you multiply it, you get the number 42. If you add it, you get the number 12. Um, Danny at the beginning of the movie has the number 42 on his uh, t-shirt when he's talking to Tony in the mirror. Um, the movie that Shelley Duvall and Danny are watching in the in the hotel is the summer of 42. Um, oh my God. The license plate that uh, Jack, that um, uh, on the license plate that Scatman Crothers is driving when he drives back to the Overlook has the number 42 on it. Um, so this is the number 21 repeats. Um, if you if you look at the end of the movie, the, the photos are arranged in uh, three columns of seven. Seven times three is 21. The road that Jack Nicholson is driving on is called Going to the Sun Road, which was constructed in 1921. Um, wow. Believe, what is it? What is it? Jack, Jack Torrance arrives there two and a half hours, which is 210 minutes, 21. Um, Jack Nicholson, another number that's great in it is, um, it's not repeating, but this is something else that Kubrick liked to do, is when Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance, um, and that's another thing, is the names repeat. Jack Torrance is Jack Nicholson. Yes. Um, Danny Torrance is Danny Lloyd. Um, the name, uh, what is it? Uh, um, uh, there, oh, there's something else in there. Uh, I can't remember. But when Jack Nicholson, Jack Torrance, is sitting at the bar with Lloyd, um, yes. and he takes a drink of alcohol, um, and this is when the demons now start to enter him, and everything goes right, he takes the drink of alcohol at 60 minutes, uh, at 66 minutes, 6 seconds, 666, is when he takes the drink of alcohol. Um, oh, wow. So that's something else. It's 666. So that's something else Kubrick does uh, in the film. And it's, that's when the demons start to take over. Right. So very esoteric with The Shining. Loads of repetition. Um, by all means, if you're interested in that, read uh, read the cinema books and then go watch the movie. Because oh, no. Now it's like, now I'm thinking, oh, my God, all these things. Are, because, uh, you know, and this is one of the things. Um, now, let me ask something. All these numbers that you mentioned, like the 12, the 42, do... 
were these important to Kubrick or is there some type of mystical meaning to these specific numbers? The, the number 12 is, is referencing the Zodiac. Um, there's an alchemical storyline with with Jack being a soul, a fallen sun god. Um, so you know we, we you know we in the movie he has his downfall in the golden room, um, which is the sun. Um, and if you pay attention to it, there's a very deep alchemical storyline of transition from failed author to psychopath. Um, so we have the number twelve as a solar reference. Forty two okay. is in the Bible. Um, so we, you know, I was talking to someone else. We think that Kubrick was trying to conjure biblical imagery, perhaps with The Shining. But um, he likes to, uh, you know, if, if you, it's not only the numbers he repeats. If, if you pay attention to it, the characters will say lines back to themselves. Um, when when Danny first encounters the twins, he, the twin girls, they say something. We want you to stay here forever and ever. Then a few minutes later, he's sitting next to his father on the bed, and Jack Nicholson says, "I want to stay here with you forever and ever." So that that's repeating dialogue. Um, when Jack, when 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 Danny and when Wendy are entering. The Hesmates, they say, keep America clean. And he says, keep America clean right back to her. Um, so so the whole movie is just constantly. And, you know, one thing that Again, I. Um, let's see, there's the two set. Let me ask you something. At, you know, at the very end yeah. of, the, of the movie where it shows that, you know, where it uh, does the close up of all the different. Um, the pictures of past events at the hotel. Right. And it zooms in and it shows what looks like Jack back in, I think it was like 1921 or something like that. Right, 1921, right. Right. And it makes you think like, okay, was he, was this, because in part of the movie he says, I feel like I know what's around the corner. Like in other words, he's referencing like he's been there before. Right, so, it's reincarnation. He's, okay, he's, that's what I was going there. with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's clearly he's been reincarnated there, and that's what all this repetition is. It's okay. this symbolic, endless reincarnation that's going on. The murdering of the, you know, of the twins again, you know, the murdering of the family again. It's all repetition. It's all happened again. The guy says it to him. He said, he said, you're the caretaker here. He said, you've always been here. He said, I know because I'm always here. Um, so okay. the whole movie is, that's what Grady says to him in, in the bathroom. So the whole movie is just constantly about repetition and this vicious reincarnation cycle that these characters okay. are trapped in. That is the Overlook Hotel. Um, yeah, very, very fascinating study with The Shining. Very great movie. No, let me tell you something. When you look at it, it's like, what, what, it's gotta be every scene. It's like, now I've got to look at it two, three times, like. What is that there? There's got to be something going on there that that has some type of meaning. That's just not their happenstance. It's there's got no, to be oh, a reason no, no. for it. No, no, it, it's definitely not there by happenstance. So this is this is all very intentional. And he 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 uh, he, um, the number thing. He changed the room number to two three seven, um, which you know it was. I think it was another number in the book. And again, this corresponds with all his number symbolism. So you know, it, it, it's definitely intentional. And it's it's incredible though because. Um, I would say what 99.9% of people have no idea whatsoever that they're basically that they're being played for lack of a better word on a subconscious level when they watch these movies. Um, that's certainly, that's certainly one way of looking at it. It's like almost they're putting a hook in you, uh, right. to, to elicit. And it's almost like, because, you know, I've heard of, you know, have you've heard that they used to have subliminal commercials where, you know, they would put certain things, uh, behind the scenes that you could capture, your eyes would capture, but you wouldn't recognize. But I'm thinking to myself, forget these subliminal type of commercials. This is subliminal across the board. 
Well, it's different than subliminal advertising, which isn't allowed because that's used. That's right. being used to promote a product. Right. But what movies can do, um, and and, it, and this isn't. I don't. I don't talk about this because this is well known, and this isn't really esoteric. It's what's called product placement, um, where, like, for example. You know, if a character's drinking a soda, Diet Pepsi will pay a certain amount of money to the filmmakers to put a, you know, to have the character drink right, a Diet right. Pepsi or something. That's what's called product placement. Um, that I don't talk about. That's kind of, you know, well known. Um, right. Interesting story with it, though, um, that I'll just get into real quick. It's nothing esoteric, but it is it is kind of a strange, funny story. Um, you know, when they were making the movie E.T. in the early 1980s, right. um, they filmed that movie using uh, M&M's. Uh, Steven Spielberg filmed oh. it using M&M candies. And when they were filming it, they someone said to Spielberg, don't you need permission to, from M&Ms to use them? He said, well, don't worry about it. He said, you know, M&Ms will be on board. You know, this movie's going to be a blockbuster. You know, we'll deal with that later. Well, someone in M&Ms got wind of it and showed up with a lawyer on the set. And, oh and they went up to Spielberg and, and said, you know, we understand you're using our product without asking us. And um, Spielberg said, yeah, he said, you know, you know, it's a it's a it's a plot device. The little boy eats them. He gives them to the space alien. And, you know, I didn't think you'd care. And the lawyer said space aliens don't eat. M&Ms are not consumed by space aliens. Take it out of the movie. Oh, uh, my God. Talk about the and, wrong and it, move. And it became and, and Steven Spielberg said, OK, what else can we use? And they went to Reese's Pieces. Yeah. Um, and the rest is history. <laughs> yes, man. I bet that lawyer or whoever thought of that lost their job. <laughs> It was like, you know, why'd you do that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, who, who, who knew? Who knows? You know, people, people make dumb mistakes all the time. <laughs> Let me ask you, and I'm, I'm gonna, and, and, and I'm gonna make with commercials. And sometimes I, I look at commercials, and it's like, if it's like, I'm gonna get into the business of writing sappy music, because, and I'm gonna give you an example. Let's say they're doing a commercial about a car, and you get sappy music, and your family's gonna be safe, and it's like. But tell me about your car. Tell me about your product. It's like uh, lately I've seen like a lot of the the commercials go trending towards touchy-feely versus, um, you know, the actual product information. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I know there's got to be some type of manipulation going on behind this because it's everybody's doing it. It's like sometimes you – and sometimes you look at the at the – the commercials and you're thinking what, what was your product about i mean i remember the commercial but it's like what was that for you're caught up more sometimes with the characters that's especially that they develop in a series of commercials oh uh, yeah sure and uh and it's almost like it's not it's not what it does for you is how it makes you feel unless you really think about what it is that you're purchasing but yeah i've seen a trend and now i'm wondering now you've got me thinking okay how deep does this thing also go with uh Maybe, maybe even with commercials, because in some cases, it's almost become like an art form, especially when they develop, you know, certain characters that they use through different, you know, years. Sure. Um, well, I mean, that, that, that's, you know, I mean, there, there is, you know, there are there is music that, that it, it can induce you. To per there's music that has been selected specifically for when you're walking around a shopping center or a grocery store yes. that, that has you know algorithms that induce purchasing or relax you or something yes. like that that that's been well documented sure i mean i mean you know catchy jingles for for tv commercials stick in your mind yes. you know i mean you know one of them you know who you know what is it you deserve a break today i mean who doesn't oh, yes. know that one? you know yes. i mean there you go um you know you know uh you know you, sure i mean Commercials can be very, you know, a catchy jingle can sell a lot of products if it's done correctly. 
I don't uh, I don't dispute that. Well, no, and 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 it's almost like um, in some cases. Well, I know they've done this for a while, where they have character development that identifies with a product, and it almost be, takes on a life of its own, or it makes the company like appear friendly, or you kind of identify that character with the company. It's almost like this is this is who we are. Well, it's like a mascot. You yes, know, sure. Exactly. You know, I mean, you have like Mickey Mouse. You know, you associate that with Walt Disney, of course, immediately. Um, so yeah, you know, Matt. You know, the Michelin Man. Um, yes. So yeah, you know, Tony. Well, the I, I, and I'm thinking of, let's say, you look at Geico, and it's got the little lizard, and the, and some other right. commercials. I love them because they're hysterical. But they've got all these different versions, and the, especially the insurance companies, these characters that they develop to identify themselves which in reality is just an insurance company but you kind of relate to the character and i mean they even merchandise off these characters tremendously and uh rob i know that we're coming to the end but i I wanted to ask you this because i know i mean i've heard about it before but disney i know disney considering that you always think of they're they're aimed at family or children but when you think about it, there's so many of their films, even the older, older ones, that, yeah, you think of it as in, they're based on fairy tales, for example, Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella and all these other films. But there's absolutely, I imagine there's got to be something in there, despite oh, sure. it's, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's I, a kid's I talked movie. About, I talked about Walt Disney in the second movie book. Um, I did some of the movies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit Disney again because there's so many. I'm just going to cover them all. Sure, I mean, The Lion King has loads of esoteric imagery in it. When you're dealing with the fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, you're dealing with a lot of, you know, um, archetypal imagery, a lot of mythology, um, some very uh, heavy religious tones going Mm -hmm. on. Um, Disney um, does get a bit of a bad rap. Some of it is not as bad as people think. Um, Where some of this comes from is in the late 70s and into the mid-80s, Disney kind of ran out of ideas. They didn't know what direction to go, and they started producing... Um, a series of films that were designed for adolescent children, teenagers, um, okay. that were very dark. Um, and, 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 and what happened was there was a backlash. People were taking their kids to see, their young kids to see Disney movies based on the Disney brand, right. on the Disney name. And these movies were not designed at all for younger children. I mean, you think of something like uh, The Black Hole um, or right. you know, the two Escape from Witch Mountain movies or Something Wicked This Way Comes or The Black Cauldron or Dragon Slayer. Um, th- these were movies that were very dark. I mean, you know, and, and had a lot of very deep adult themes in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there was a backlash against Disney. And, and some of this is where this, where this, you know, dark, sinister connotation with Disney comes from. I think it was 88 or 89, which is what is, thought was what is generally referred to as the start of what's called the Disney Renaissance, okay. where it was every summer, you, you'll remember this, where every summer, I think it was 89, Disney started putting out this grandiose, you know, animated blockbuster smash hit with these musical numbers that just made right. a year. The first one was The Little Mermaid. Right, this uh, is when all the princesses started coming out, all the, the storylines of the princesses or whatever, yes. Right, the biggie, the biggie, right, the biggie, the first one was Little Mermaid, the biggie was in 94, was The Lion King. But then you had like Hunchback of Notre Dame, Pocahontas, um, you know, Mulan, you know, yes. these were the movies that sort of rehabilitated Walt Disney uh, in the public eye. But no, um, I, I, I talk about um, uh, the Walt Disney material in the book. Um, by all means, check it out. 
Um, I get into that in Cinema Symbolism 2. It's going to be something else I get into Cinema Symbolism 3. But no, Disney films uh, definitely are not immune and without question have esoteric imagery. No, I imagine that, yeah, it's hard not to think of. And it's just how much they, you know, I guess. Let me ask you, have you ever come across real quick anybody that's produced a movie that did not do it intentionally? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um this, this is something I talk about with this imagery coming out of the collective unconscious. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I've, I've been asked this question before, and the example I always give is this goofy um, movie put out by this B-movie B filmmaker. His movies are actually very entertaining, but not for the reasons he anticipated. A guy named Ed Wood. Um, and and, and in his first movie that he released was a movie in 1953. It's this, it's, it's this incredibly bizarre um, uh, I don't know what else to call it, but a transvestite apologia. <laughs> um, Wood, Wood was a transvestite in real life, and he put out this movie in 1953 called Glenn or Glenda. Make a long story short, it's about why it's this docudrama about why society should tolerate transvestism. Uh, but in this movie, he actually, and I don't, you know, he, it's one of I, I've been asked this before. It's one of the greatest examples of a Gnostic demiurge on film. If your listeners are not aware, a Gnostic, the, the demiurge in Gnosticism is sort of the lesser god. He's mm -hmm. the creator of mankind. He's the manipulator of mankind. And one of the greatest examples of a Gnostic demiurge um, you'll see on screen is in Glenn or Glenda, is the, is the Bela Lugosi character who plays the god of the material world, who's manipulating mankind, pulling the strings to get mankind to do what he wants, um, to satisfy his narrow ego. Um, and I know, I know that Wood didn't have the faintest clue what a, a Gnostic demiurge was. I mean, I know that. I know that just from reading books about him. But, you know, there it is, this great example of this Gnostic demiurge on film that I believe appears there um, as a product of Wood's uh, unconscious mind, caught the collective unconscious, where Wood is creating this Gnostic demiurge, but he had no idea what he was doing. Um, so that would be an example of something that was unintentionable, but had this great resonance uh, this great effect to it. Um, so, yeah, it can occur, uh, you know, by happenstance. Right, because, you know, all these producers and these directors, they're always asked, oh, where, you know, where do you draw your inspiration from? Or, and they'll all say, oh, when I was growing up, let's say, I'm talking about, let's say, for example, Spielberg. Oh, I, I, you know, I looked, I saw the Hammer films when I was growing up. And, you know, and they talk about all these different things or, you know, movies or books, whatever, that they were looking at when they were kids. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, how much of this is they themselves were embedded with certain symbols and then they produce based on whatever they want to produce, you know, whatever their psychological makeup is for whatever reason. And but then I'm thinking just got to be a bunch of those walking out there that produce maybe not as, you know, embedded like what you said and everything, but that they subconsciously produce whether it's even books, storylines, movies, everything, uh, based on what they took in subconsciously on a subconscious level. That's super sure. interesting. Yeah, you can <laughs> definitely look at it like that. Us human beings, boy, I'm telling you. <laughs> you know, and, and it's really, it, it, it's, it's almost like, okay, how would you ever keep yourself from this? It's like, what, move to a mountain and don't watch TV ever? I mean, it's like, there's just no way to get away from it. Well, I like watching because I like trying to decode it. So it's, oh it's no, fun for, for you me. no, I can imagine. <laughs> it's like okay, I gotta watch that all over again, you know, and just to see, I gotta look at what's going on in the background. And it's true, you're absolutely right. I've, I've picked up on things not as deep as you what you do, but yeah, after I watch it a few times, sometimes I do pick up on certain things 
because it's almost like I can switch my eyes off the main characters and look off to the sides or in the background and pick up on things that the first time you're watching it, you just your attention is drawn just strictly to what the characters are doing on screen. Right. Wow, Rob, this has been such an eye opener. <laughs> it's like, and it's yeah, it's it's ultimately it's about manipulation intentional or unintentional or whatever the case might be uh whatever the intention is of the one the person producing it and um you said that also this last book pack with the devil you already have a prequel and a sequel plan to go with that right right well right now i'm actually um believe it or not i'm actually writing on five books at once um <laughs> yeah, well, I'm actually working on another book on Freemasonry called Freemasonry and the Path to Babylon. Um, I'm writing, I'm outlining Cinema Symbolism 3, and I'm working on a sequel and a prequel to, well, well I'm working on a sequel to A Pact with the Devil. The prequel is part of another string of stories that I'm going to do that are sort of backstories, backdrops to the uh, Pact with the Devil stories to get into some of the background of some of the lesser characters. Okay. Um, but but, but uh, uh, right now, um, actually... Um, I can't get too specific with this, and it's just not with you. It's with anybody. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm actually somewhat committed to writing another book. Um, unfortunately, I, I'm bound by a non-disclosure agreement right That's now. Okay. Um, and I, I can't get into it at all. With, it's well, just with anybody. Um, th this, this will probably be coming to fruition, and probably, hopefully in the next coming months, I could probably start talking about it as, as this comes out of the bag. But right now, I just can't get into it. So, But, but, but what's going to wind up happening is, if, if things play out the way I think they will, um, this book is going to take precedent and the others are just going to have to go to the side. Um, I'm going to get this book out, try try to get it out as soon as possible. And the others will just have to be put on the back burner for the time being. Um, this would become my number one project. But unfortunately, I just I just can't talk about it right now. I understand. Let me, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I know that you've probably, based on your readings and your experiences, um, is there anything that you draw inspiration from, let's say, when you are, because I know some of, you know, based on your work, if let's say if it's nonfiction, it's based on research and experience in some cases, and then it's, you know, if it's fiction, it's inspiration. Uh, is there anything that you could say this has been what's influenced me the most as far as when I'm doing, I'm going into a creative state of mind? Because well, five I mean, books, I, that's I, a I, lot. I, the, only, the only way I can answer that is, I can tell you this, uh, that none of my, if, if I hadn't joined Masonry, none of my books would exist. Wow. Uh, that, that, that I can tell you. Um, because the Royal Arch is the one that really got me started with this. And, and, and what I did was, when, you know, the Royal Arch was, like, like you said, 20 years of researching the occult, mysticism, symbolism, mythology, ancient religions, comparative religion. And essentially, Marlene, what I did was, when I got done with Royal Arch, I took this 20 years of experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm trying to sound trite, but I literally turned it on Hollywood. Um, I just took this, the, the, this knowledge and this education that was kind of self-taught and just turned it to Hollywood and started breaking these movies down on an esoteric level when it appeared in a movie. Um, so I would definitely say my involvement with Freemasonry was a big one. But, you know, I mean, I mean, certainly, you know, my experiences, like you said, my friends, you know, when I'm writing fiction, I obviously the people have to be fictitious. But, um, right. you know, right, you know I, I mean, the, the, like, for example, um, when, in, in a pact with the devil, um, the story opens. Um, in, in England, at in, in Oxford University, which, of course, where I was. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't think I would have done that had I not gone over there. Right. Uh, when I was over there, 
in London, um, there is this very gothic uh, and, and overrun cemetery called Highgate Cemetery, okay. which is this just absolute incredible Victorian era gothic cemetery that's completely overgrown. Um, and, and you really, you can't describe it. You have to see it to believe it. And the, this, the cemetery is sort of a character in the book. Um, oh, wow. and, I, and I know that wouldn't be the case if I had not gone there. Of course, if so, you hadn't seen it firsthand. You got it. You got it. You, you absolutely got it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, all, all that I take, you know, my experience, my reading, um, you know, what, you know, you know, other works of fiction. I mean, if you, if you watch it, or excuse me, if you read a pact with the devil, I mean, you're, you're going to clearly see homages in there to Sherlock Holmes. I mean, okay. you know, things like that. I mean, you know, that there are, there are hidden things in the book. Um, I don't want to get into it, but you know, you, you should pick up on some stuff going on inside the book. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is all something I draw. I draw inspiration, uh, you know, from. I mean, you know, and and it's something I like doing. And like I said, you know, um, you know, there's four books out right now, and I have more on the way. It just depends on what happens in the coming months. Um, you know, we'll see what happens next. Rob, let me ask you real quick. When you started, like you said, when you turned all your inf- all the knowledge that you had about symbolism, were you surprised when you started looking at movies that you took a second look? No, no, I you wasn't weren't surprised. Because, I was to an extent. Because, well, here's what happened when when I wrote Royal Arch, the last chapter I did in the Royal Arch um, focused on movies that dealt with predominantly solar and Masonic themes. The National Treasure films, which are very Masonic, but oh, yeah. more than you're seeing on the surface. Movies like Excalibur, The King Arthur Ledger's Solar, The Da Vinci Code has a lot of hidden meaning in it um, that's beneath the surface. And I knew, I knew going in that like movies like the Matrix trilogy had Gnosticism or was a Gnostic theme movie. I knew from listening to interviews with Star Wars that he was influenced by Joseph Campbell. Um, I knew from watching The Exorcist that there was this whole interplay with light versus darkness with it. So I, I knew a little bit, you know, I mean, you know, going into it that you know of other movies I wanted to take on. Um, the one thing I guess that kind of surprised me with all this was, you know, in some movies like The Shining or the Aronofsky films, you know, to the great lengths these guys will go to to hide stuff in films. That that took me back. Um, okay. You know, like, you know, when you see like the February twelfth date, I mean, that's right. not an act. You know, you know that that's what kind of you know was sort of mind blowing for me, and that, that to me is also where you know it's intentional. I mean, something like that's not a coincidence. That's impossible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you know, for me it was just analyzing the movie, and again, I, I just to wrap up. You know, I only analyze movies that I, I'm a lawyer, so I would only present this m- material to a judge and jury. You know, that's sort of the standard I held myself to. Okay. If I'm not convinced it's there, I don't talk about it. You know what? And I'm hoping you're going to come back and talk to me again. Uh, and one thing I, I, that we're, I would love to talk to you about, and I know that you said, and uh, you're. Like, I don't know how you spare a minute for anything, to be honest with you, is one trend that I see that the usual uh, villain is almost like the anti-hero now, and the latest trend becomes the hero. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that, yeah, I mean, this is what's called, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is the anti-hero uh, character, where it's a villain, but he's like a good guy that people are rooting for. Right, like all of a sudden, before, traditionally, this character would have been the villain all the way through. Okay, Uh, and all of a sudden, I've seen this trend like in the last few years where the anti-hero almost becomes the hero. Like, how did that happen? (laughs) 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's a very powerful archetypal image. Um, probably the most famous, I would say one of the most famous anti-heroes out there is probably Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and Severus Snape in, in yes. Harry Potter would kind of fall into that category. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's, it, it has to do with uh, Jungian psychology, what's known as the shadow persona. And, you know, the dark side that, you know, you know, why is it, you know, that, you know, I mean, it's, it's everyone likes the villain character, you know, the, you know, Darth Vader, uh, right. you know, it has this tragic, you know, background to him. So this is something that people really relate to. Yes. And, uh, you yeah, know, like all of a sudden they give that, that, that reason why he's such a bad guy, you know, or, or why he does what he does. Right. And, and it's usually if you, if you, if you, if you um, do it correctly, and I think I did it in the book, a lot of times the, vil the villain character has no clue they're the villain. Right. Uh, they think they're acting nobly, and they think they're doing the right thing, you know, or, or whatever, yes. but of course they're not. Um, but a lot of times they think, you know, hey, we're not doing anything wrong. You know, we're, we're all good and fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and, and like I said, before you would see it on and off, and, and, and sometimes when they would put it, you almost, they didn't make them, the hero, but you almost kind of felt sorry for the villain in a way. But now it's gone totally where he ends up being the hero or, um, and I'm going to give you real quick, a perfect example. Uh, and I know you might, might not have seen it, which is a movie that came out like about a year ago called The Suicide Squad. And oh, it's, yeah. it's and, and they're all anti-heroes totally. They're all bad sure. guys in the universe right. of all these heroes. These are all the bad people. And they become the heroes in this movie because, and of course, they're sent on the suicide mission because they're considered expendable because they're worthless. Sure. I saw the movie. Yeah, okay. I totally agree. I totally agree with that. No question. So, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, Rob, thank you so, so much. I've so enjoyed this. This is wonderful. I would love to have you back. And sure. I know it sounds like you're so busy. Hats off to you, my God. That's incredible. Well, thank you. No, thank let me you. just say thank you for having me on. Would you like me to get my webpage out real yes, quick? Or yes, yes, yes. I am going to put it in the credits of the show, but absolutely, That's fine. yes. No, go just ahead. just real quick. Um, if you like the interview, just uh, the easiest way to find me in my books, just go to my website. My website is my name. My name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. So my website's www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Uh, like Marlene said, it's in the description, so you can find it there. Um, links to buy the books, links for information about me, upcoming appearances, uh, webcasts I'm going to be on, including this one. Just go there, www.robertwsullivaniv. Very easy to navigate. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great to have you on. Well, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. So, oh, my God. This man is so fascinating. <laughs> He's so fascinating. I could have had him on for hours and hours and hours and hours. He'd probably, like, come hanging up on you. <laughs> He's great. He's fantastic. Um, I have heard interviews that they've had with him in other shows, and I thought, I'm, I wish I wish he would come and be on my show, and I'm so happy he did. Yay! But no, seriously. Um, I'm, I know from practical experience how powerful the subconscious mind is for humans, for both in the positive and in the negative. Um, and despite the, what we think, that... It's our logical minds that makes decisions in reality. It's our subconscious mind that's in the driver's seat. And uh, I learned this a lot in, uh, in my practice, especially as a hypnotherapist, uh, where people uh, would either try to do or not do certain things, certain habits, and they couldn't understand why if they logiced it, they couldn't do it or stop doing it. 
and it's because their subconscious and I mean that's a whole different thing as far as pain and pleasure and the way your subconscious mind works fear of change etc but the point being that it's incredible how all these directors and producers whoever it is that are coming out with these stories because that's all they are they're storytellers um, learn how to imbue their version based on what they want to produce because I'm sure like he said all the symbology yeah besides the fact that the symbology is there it's what symbology is being used in the background either obviously or peripherally or like I said even the music and a lot of people don't realize especially that a lot of the beats of these uh, movies they will put you into a light hypnotic trance and you don't realize it and what happens is that when you're sitting there and you're watching this movie let's use Star Wars why not that basically that you find yourself in there uh, part of that induction is the music that you're listening to in other words if right now you saw Star Wars or any of these big blockbuster films with no music just the dialogue I guarantee you they would not be as popular or as uh, impressive that people would go back to see it and tell everybody to go see it I guarantee you it wouldn't a lot of it has to do the state of mind that you're put in when you listen to the music and believe it or not and like I told them when you hear the theme from Jaws you're like okay I'm getting out of the water now and what that does is that music puts a hook in your subconscious mind right now I could listen to the theme from Star Wars or from any of the other big movies you know that they have and I immediately comes to mind and what people don't understand is your mind speaks to you in symbols and that's why sometimes we have dreams when you dream you don't dream in words you dream in pictures and symbols in people and sometimes you have dreams where you know you understand it. it's people you know but I'm sure everybody's had these really wild dreams that don't make sense or with people and things that you've never seen or don't know and and they're sometimes you you have people say I even remember that I dreamt in color and it's nine times out of ten this is your subconscious mind talking to you the best way it can and chances are that before that it's been your subconscious has been trying to give you a message like I said a tap on the shoulder and one of two things you haven't been paying attention to it or you have not been ready to process or bring to the surface what it's trying to tell you in your dreams which that's why it's very important that you go into REM sleep so that you do have these dreams and one other important thing is that it also clears out your mind so that you kind of get a in other words you sometimes the symbology is you're working out your fears and sometimes on a daily basis what you're doing is you're processing what you did at work and sometimes you have crazy dreams and sometimes it's really obvious you know you know you, you dream about your boss you know a co-worker and it's like no mystery there and other times you have really weird dreams and it's just your subconscious working it out but the point being that all these uh, storytellers again whether they're you know and, and, and let's face it visually is much more impactful than when you're reading it unless you have a great imagination like me but uh, they know they're hooking you in there because they seem to understand what or how powerful your subconscious is 
whether it's to buy a product, to get enraptured with that storyline, to come back and see the sequels. And in some cases, and I'm sure you've all seen it, all the merchandising that goes along with all these movies, okay? Uh, the figures, the lunch boxes, the costumes, the blankets, the sheets, the curtains. Think about it, guys. It also, you know, we could think of it as esoteric, and I'm sure a lot of it is, which is why I asked them, do these symbols, are they just meant as a form of communication between, let's say, people in a society, let's say like the Freemasons, or is there actually some type of power within that symbol? And I think in some instances it does, but whatever the case might be, it all boils down to manipulation and what they're trying to tell you or spoon feed you behind the scenes. So sometimes I think it's a good idea to really understand what you're looking at, just not from the entertainment point of view. Or if you have kids, you know, what is it that they're really seeing? You know, what the, what is it that they're learning from it? You know, or what's the intent of that storyteller in telling what looks like a, like what he was saying, these Disney movies as sometimes, or, uh, or Back to the Future. Oh my God. I'm always thinking Back to the Future is the most innocent, uh, very easy to understand what the purpose of it is. Um, and just in those few minutes, he described all these things that I got to go back and look at it again now uh, that you just don't know to look for it. Uh, absolutely. His books. I mean, if you're into this, definitely you have to pick up his books. And, and, and I got to look at that last one, that that last one he came out with, which wouldn't it be great if they produced a movie out of this book that he wrote, Pack with the Devil? the fiction that would be fantastic because it sounds like such an interesting book but anyway guys uh, thank you so much for viewing please subscribe to my channel please hit the like video or if you're listening to this on podcast form uh please you know save my uh you know save my channel or wherever it is that you're listening to it uh whether it's Spreaker, iHeartRadio, iTunes, tune in i mean i'm all over the place guys uh if you look for me you're going to be able to find me uh and again message out to my true believers if you've got a true story i would love to hear from you uh you can film yourself with your phone uh record it mp3 file or just email it to me at marlene at miamighostchronicles.com and if you've got a lot of stories uh we even get together and i will do what I do now, get you on Skype, whatever, whatever you feel comfortable with. If, and, and you're going to see in some of my shows that are going to come out if, well, no, as a matter of fact, by the time you see this, you already have seen some shows that I've produced with people that I've gone in and I've interviewed them in person and they've fantastic stories. So believe me, I don't hold judgment. Is it true or is it not true? Is it fantastical? I just want to hear it. Believe me, guys, you are all the source of the best, most interesting stories, whether it's a ghost story, urban myth, uh, sometimes true life. Maybe it's something that a uh, story that your family's been retelling each other for generations, all of that. So again, guys, take care. And again, thank you so very much for being part of my audience. Bye-bye.